Hello and welcome to Too Much Time On Our Hands, The Theatrical Cut. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about the works of Quentin Tarantino. As ever, I'm joined by Sonia. Hello dear. And I'm Terry, because I forgot to introduce myself yet again. <laughs> um, you don't need an introduction, no. do you? Everyone knows my dulcet tones by now. Just cough and we'll all know you're here. <laughs> or, or fucking do one of my horrendous cackles. Um, so yeah, so we're going to be talking about Quentin Tarantino. To mix it up, the order we're going to be going in is not chronological. We're not doing Snog, Marry, Avoid because he's only made up to this point nine films with his with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood coming out soon. Although that has been marketed as his ninth film, that's because he counts Kill Bill 1 and 2 as one film because it was originally intended to be one film. So we're talking about nine films because we've separated those out. Um, so we're going to be going by the order that people have let us know their favourites. So we've created a listener top top nine Quentin Tarantino films and we'll be working from least favourite to most favouritist. And that's how we're going to go through. So I'm going to pass over to Sonia because she has the order. Yes. And I kind of feel like... Not, I'm not saying that this is my subject, but you had Keanu and you fucking love Keanu. And I feel like you like Tarantino more than I like Keanu, which is fair. Um... But I love Tarantino. I can't... I know I said that doing the Mission Impossible episode was my favourite episode to date. I think the Tarantino one might be up there with it as well. Um, Very quickly before we do our um, rundown then um, of the, the listener rankings, because to be honest, I really struggled and I couldn't rank them. I yeah, kind I... of feel like I'd have one or two near the bottom. I'd probably have a... A number one, six films that are like joint second, and then a, and an eighth and a ninth place. Um, so it was really hard. So when we got so many responses, and we did get so many responses as to what people's favourite Tarantino films are, we decided to do it in listener rankings. But very quickly, let's just talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is coming out this summer. Um, I believe, and Terry and I just watched a trailer for it before we recorded. Now, I'm super excited about this film for two reasons. It's got Leonardo in it and it's got Brad Pitt in it and I don't really think much else needs to be it's done. It's got Margot on... in it as well. Yeah, but for me, <laughs> having those two in it, not uh, not much really needs to be happening on the screen for me to enjoy. Have they been in a film together before? don't know. Certainly not they've been together in, they've, together they've, like this. No, but... they haven't been. I mean, they've each... We'll get on to the, the... They've each headed up uh, yeah. a Tarantino film themselves or help to head up a Tarantino film uh, separately but um, never together but no I don't think they've done a film together have no. they um, but we were just having a quick scroll through um, the cast and we were saying about how Tarantino just has this way of getting so many brilliant actors together like Terry said Margot Robbie's in it playing Sharon Tate but um, you've got Dakota, Dakota Fanning Al Pacino Kurt Russell's in it Luke Perry's in it. I mean, was this his last acting role? I would have thought Let's so. Certainly so. his last film, I would have thought. Um, Damien Lewis, Tim Roth's in yeah, it. he's getting the band back together um, again. Yeah. Michael Madsen, I think, is the... Michael Madsen's Tarantino is the only man giving him work these days. Um, Bruce Dern's in it. Yeah, Zoe not... Bell. I thought I said Zoe Ball for a minute. Zoe Bell, another Tarantino favourite. Rumor Willis is in it. Um, there's just... It's... I mean, it's just such an amazing cast. I think he's one of those people as well that a lot of those roles are probably quite minor and they perhaps wouldn't do that for another director, but everyone wants to get involved in a Tarantino film because he doesn't make that many films when you consider it. But 
to have two actors of that caliber working side by side i just I, it's almost I don't, I don't, it's almost like cheeky of them to put them together. It's because you like you can't pick who gets top billing out of those two. I bet they would go with the old alphabetical, so it'd be DiCaprio. It's a tough one, isn't it? Or, or maybe one of them will get and starring. What did they do for Pulp Fiction? Didn't they have like because there were so many huge names in Pulp Fiction as well? I think you've got like a and featuring and also or something like that because yeah. you have like a top billing and then you have someone at the end as well don't yeah, you because sometimes they literally want to be like mention. the highest on the poster don't they yeah. and stuff like that so they get around to that so it's the first one but you're higher yeah all sorts all sorts of shenanigans to keep people happy yeah anyway so that's once upon a time in hollywood um we didn't actually say what it was about did we um it's about a tv actor and his stunt double and um they're trying to achieve fame and as i said margot robbie is in it playing sharon tate so it's taking place it's we think the same at the same time, time as the manson murders. Yeah, Mance, there is someone playing manson so okay i don't um, think it's a big name playing him i also found out this week that there's another man oh, someone playing steve mcqueen so damien lewis is playing steve mcqueen there's another manson murders film being made and matt smith is playing charles manson oh damon herriman is playing charles manson yeah, don't yeah. know who that is. Yeah, Matt Smith is Charles Manson in another film. Nice. Strange cast, or possibly good casting. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. We'll have to wait and see. So, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the ninth film by Quentin Tarantino. As Terry said, Tarantino classes Kill Bill 1 and 2 as one film, but for the purpose of this pod, we are separating them because they were released as two separate films. So we're going to be talking about nine films and they're going to be ranked and presented um, ninth place up to first place. So we're going to start with the film that got the least amount of listener votes. It's not the film that I thought was going to come in in ninth place. The least favourite, if we can call it, um, listener Tarantino movie is Kill Bill 2. Terry, do you want to... Talk to us about Kill Bill 2. So it's kind of hard to talk about Kill Bill 2 when we haven't talked about Kill Bill 1. No, but let's um, talk about Kill Bill 2. Let's assume that a lot of people listening have watched Tarantino films. Kill Bill 2 came out in 2004. Um, I've only got one note on it on my phone. Do you want to go with your note first? Um, I really enjoyed the martial arts training montage. It was done in the style of an old... Um, Very much so... I mean, like the whole film movie. is sort of a, a, a homage, homage yeah, oh, to, to like old school kung fu. So yes, yeah, so you got Pai Mai, I'm probably murdering that name, as Uma Thurman's mentor and teacher. This one, like that chunk is almost like a prequel to Kill Bill 1. And then we go on. So it's the continued adventures of the bride mm-hmm. uh, seeking revenge we find out what for in this film. We find out that it was her wedding where Bill and the assassins turned up. Um, this is very much the sort of talking equivalent to the first film. The first yeah. film is very action. This is very much more talky. Um, but I love the scenes between um, the bride. I'll 
her name is mentioned this in this film, but if you haven't seen it, we'll leave it for you to find out. Because in the first film, it's bleaked every time her name is actually said. The scenes between the bride and Bill himself, I just think the way they're done, because it is just, for the most part, they're just sat talking, mm. and they're talking in a really civilised, adult fashion. There's no sort of screaming, shouting, swearing. There's no animosity, despite the fact there really should be animosity. And I just thought those scenes were so like towards the end where she gets to his house I think those scenes are absolutely fantastic um, and I just feel like throughout I mean I don't think it's a spoiler to say that there's quite a lot of deaths in it I just think every death is really satisfying mm-hmm. there's no sort of you're right, mate hey Winston uh, not, not keen on Kill Bill 2 either he's walked off no he doesn't um, like it I just think every time that someone gets off, the way that they get off and the way the the bride gets like her revenge is just really satisfying and I really enjoy that. Because when we originally thought of this topic, or when we decided on this topic and I thought about, because we were going to try and do our own top 10, top 9, this would have been very near the bottom for me, yeah. like off memory. But I think I've only watched, I think I've only watched it twice now. I think I watched them both when they came out. But I, I enjoyed it much more than I remembered. And, yeah, I really, really liked it. Um, I seem to recall liking Daryl Hannah in this. Yeah, because she's not really in the first one either. Yeah, no. she, she has a particularly lovely death. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't think anyone's bad. Even, like, Michael Madsen, who I think is an actor who is fully turned on autopilot in pretty much everything he's in, probably bar the Quentin Tarantino films... He's really good and he's obviously like down on his luck. He's fallen out of the trailer. he's fallen out of the assassin game. He's he's working at a strip bar where mm. he's we see him get fired from the strip bar because he doesn't turn up on time. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's just, I mean, there's a particularly brutal scene where he shoots the bride with like rock salt, which I imagine stung like a motherfucker. Mm. But yeah, no, I just think because it's easy with villains to make them like really cackly and like and make you hate them and make you root for the good guy but I don't think in this one you are rooting for the bride but I don't think it's at the expense of hating the other characters I feel like no he just does a really good job of creating these I mean as he would do because as we said this is the second part and it was meant to be one film it it spiralled into a four hour epic that overran on budget and time so they released it in two films to make the money back but no I say surprised how much I enjoyed it watching it again and yeah, it it's definitely one of those middle ones for me. It's not not at the bottom of the pile for me. I think um, with Tarantino, there's what always strikes me about his films is when you watch his films, and I do you know I do believe that all movie directors are like this that he really fucking loves film. Oh god, yeah. but it really shows in his films. It's like the films, but especially the earlier ones or the sort of let's say so he's done nine let's say the first five or six I think really highlight that love for like classic cinema and I especially think that the Kill Bill films maybe because I like martial arts movies his very clear love of that genre just shows through because he hasn't tried to make an up-to-date martial arts movie it's no, because that training montage is the fucking off the wall. The training montage is so classic. 
it's so so good it's just like watching an old film and the the blood work in it as well like the sprays of blood mm. because the blood work in Tarantino films does change as the films go on but I think the Kill Bill films is the first is the first time you see a different kind of blood work because it's that it's a spray rather than well other but um I really really feel that these films especially show how much he loves films if that makes sense do you know what I mean yeah no 100% I just need to I do apologize because I've got notes written on paper so if I'm going to be if I'm crinkling rustling yeah if I'm crinkling I apologize in advance so that was an ninth favorite from the listeners the next one on the list i think is a hugely underrated film and that's death proof from 2007 um death proof is part of the grindhouse double bill uh the other one is i've forgotten it again already planet terror by robert rodriguez planet terror by robert rodriguez um and this was their Another homage, homage to uh, the Grindhouse movies. Yeah, 70s exploitation films. Yeah, exactly. Um, what do you think of Death Proof? I love it. I, it's, it wasn't near the bottom when I was thinking about it and re-watching it. I definitely think... Because it's almost two films, two isn't films, it? Two films, yeah. The first part, I think, is fucking brilliant. The second part, I think, is very good, but it's a bit... Yeah. But the first half, I absolutely love it. I, Kurt Russell's yeah. just fantastic. So, Death Proof, if you haven't seen it and you need to see this film, it is so, so good, is you get... There's two groups of girls in it. Like Terry says, you've got the first part of the film and the second part of the film. And in in those two halves of the film, you've got two groups of very attractive girls and they are stalked and terrorised by Stuntman Mike, played by Kurt Russell, and his apparently death-proof car. Because he's a stuntman... He's he claims that his car is death proof, but it's only death proof on the driver's side. Yeah, that, as we that's see a big reveal a towards the end of it, isn't it? Yeah, um, and they're proper like seventies muscle cars. They're beautiful things, and it's got a big um, skull painted on the bonnet. Or what would they call? Did they call it a hood? Yes, or is that the boot? I don't know. Anyway, it's a trunk and a hood. If you're in America. Um, the first part of the film with the first group of girls is filmed to look real old. It almost looks like it's in the seventies. Yeah. Um, it's it's filmed to look like I guess how the films looked that yeah. they're paying homage to because it's even got like the sort of the crackles it's sort of in the screen looking, and, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's in a different format presented differently on the screen yeah. um, I might just be imagining that but you've got this group of girls they meet Stuntman Mike at a bar he terrorises them and then there's a very sort of like definite middle point and then the film continues with another group of girls it's it's almost like the same story is repeated but now we're watching it filmed just as if it was filmed now yeah um you know it's cleaned up but essentially the the timeline is just continuing it's not like there's been a gap between the two it's but but it's been a gap of like less than a year because what happens in the first part of the film is stuntman mike uh crashes his car he gets injured and it's basically the amount of time it takes for him to recover from those injuries and then he goes out stalking again in his car um he starts stalking a second group of girls um i think and these he's girls... more sinister to start with in the second one yeah. in the first one although it's very apparent to anyone watching it he's not a good guy because mm. it's say it's a 70s homage so 
he's very early painted. He there is something not quite right with him, but he charms them a bit more in the first one. He chats to them in the yeah. bar, although he eats nachos in a very disgusting fashion. Yeah. Um, but the second one, he's very sinister right from the get go. Um, so yeah, the the second part, you got the second group of girls who he starts terrorizing, but these girls just fight back a lot harder. With amongst this group of girls, you've got Zoe Bell, who I believe is playing herself. Basically, yeah, she is. Um, a, she was Uma's stunt double for the Kill Bill films. Yeah, so she's been in a number of Tarantino films now. Like Terry says, she was Uma Thurman's stunt double. She is a stunt woman. She's playing a stunt woman. So the girls are playing actresses in this film. I personally prefer the second half of the film. Um, I, I I like I like all of the female characters, but I especially like the second group. Um, but I especially like Zoe Bell because there's just mm. something different about you've got all these glamorous girls and then you've got zoe bell who's like a stunt woman and there's just something different about her and the stunt that she performs as well where she's on the front of the car is yeah. so insane and you know she's doing it as well um it's just it's just absolutely brilliant i really really feel like death proof is one of those films when i was talking to people about we had loads of people like message us about this but people that I actually spoke to I'd be like oh we're talking about Tarantino what's your favourite Tarantino films 9 out of 10 people said the same fucking film but when you'd say there's 9 films we're going to count Kill Bill 1 and 2 as 2 films can you list them Death Proof was nearly always forgotten people forgot mm. it um, and a lot of people said from Dust Till Dawn we're like no he didn't direct yeah, that no. um, and a few people say True Romance as well yeah um and Death Proof was for, was forgotten a lot of the time. Um, and I, th- I, I just think that a lot of people haven't seen it. And I just think it's a real shame. Because I just think it's a really good entertaining film. Um, I've got about some of the films. I've got some of it because some people wrote about why they chose certain films. So someone did choose Death Proof as their favourite Tarantino film. Um, and they said the second half was the best thing about the whole Grindhouse mm. duo. I've seen Planet Terror once. I... I enjoy Planet I, Terror, but I think Death Proof's a better film. I much prefer Death Proof, and I really, really love the second part. I think Death Proof is awesome, and everyone should watch it. Well, my favourite bit is the crash in the first half. I just, it's just so slow, so grindhousey, so dirty, so yeah. horrible, and so graphic as well. And mm. just, it's yeah, it's just brilliant. Limbs flying everywhere. Yeah. I mean, the leg that flies. Yeah, the yeah. face that just gets torn up by a tire. Yeah. It's magic. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, watch that film. Okay, so number seven then on our list in seventh place. Um, and I'm going to be completely honest, this is probably my number nine. Uh, is Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown is from 1997. I think it's his number three, isn't it? It's we his, did chronological. Yeah, so... Tarantino's third film, um, Jackie Brown. Are we going to say that this revived or um, brought back Pam Greer? I think so, yeah. It's a bit yeah. like, obviously we'll get to it a bit more, but like what he did with Travolta. Yeah. Um, so Jackie Brown is about a middle-aged woman, an called air Jackie stewardess Brown. called Jackie Brown. Um, and she's caught um, smuggling some money for a local gangster played by Samuel L. Jackson, whose name in the film is Ordell Rob. With her, excuse me, Ordell Robbie. A lovely long wig. 
Um, his hair and beard style in that film was his idea. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's caught smuggling some money, which she knew she was going to be smuggling, but they also found some cocaine in her bag, which she acts surprised about, and I don't know if she is actually surprised or whatever, but um, basically, so she gets caught with this money by the feds. You know, she goes to them with, like, a plea deal, because she ends up... Um, Going, they put her in jail and she has to get bailed um, and she goes to them and she's just like look because the, they won't let her fly again and she's like I need to fly otherwise I don't have a job so I'll do a deal with you I'll help you catch Ordell Robbie but you need to let mm. me fly so that's their deal but she also goes in well she doesn't really go into a deal with there's the bail bondsman um, who obviously has a soft spot for her. So yeah. Samuel L. Jackson's character has approached this guy, Max Cherry, who's the bail bondsman guy, yeah. and he fronts the money to get her out of prison, but then she visits him and he kind of is looking out for her and he kind of yeah. knows what's going it's on. Like, it's like instant love, isn't it? Love at first sight. Yeah. And there's lots of sort of like different things going on as well. And Robert De Niro is staying with Ordell Robbie. Yeah, he's just got, so out, he's of just prison. got out of prison. So there's stuff going on with him as well. But ultimately, it's a lot of people not really um, telling each other the truth yeah. and sort of going behind their backs. But ultimately, Jackie Brown is trying to rip off Yeah, she's Ordell playing everyone Robbie. against each other. Yeah, she's doing exactly that. Um, as I said before, it's revived... It revived the career of Pam Grier. And I believe Pam Grier was supposed to maybe get a role in Pulp Fiction. But it didn't happen or the mm. role went to someone else. So I think when Tarantino was writing Jackie Brown, he had Pam Grier in mm. mind for the character and of Jackie Brown. And when you mentioned him writing it, this is the only film that he didn't write himself. This isn't an original story. This is based from on a, a novel. Yeah. yeah. Everything else he's written from scratch. Because um, I don't believe she's black in the book, is she? No, he changed that, yeah. Yeah, because he wanted Pam Greer. Because um, I think I remember reading as well that when she auditioned probably for Pulp Fiction, it was at his house or something, and there was like... Because she was Foxy Brown, was she? There yeah. was posters of her on the wall, and she was like, have you put those up because of me? And he's like, no, I didn't want to take them down because you'd think I'd taken them down because you were here. Yeah, no, and again, he it was just his love of down. film. Yeah, he thought about taking them down because she was coming over. Yeah. But she thought he'd put them up specially. Um now, I did read somewhere, but I don't know how old the quote is, that Samuel L. Jackson has said this is his favourite film of Tarantino's that he's done. But I don't know when he said that, because obviously... During the press junket for Jackie Brown. Um, he's done a couple of others <laughs> since then. But then, so, I mean, another... So, I, I'll be honest, this is probably my least favourite Tarantino film. I think we were talking about it, or I might have been talking to someone else about it. If I was to list the nine Jack, uh, the nine Tarantino films and say, right, Jackie Brown's at the bottom, it's not a shit film. No. It's like, there's an amazing film, but there's eight others that I like more. I think it's, it's very much, it's the least good Tarantino film. It's not the worst Tarantino film. Because mm. it is just... I just think the story it, doesn't appeal to me as much, but maybe that's... Because I love Tarantino so much, maybe the fact that he didn't write it, and I didn't... first time I saw Jackie Brown, I didn't know he hadn't write, written it. Mm. It was only the second time I saw it that I found out it was based on a book. So mm. maybe the fact that the first time I saw it, I wasn't into it at all. Maybe it's because he didn't write it. I don't know. But, mm. 
we got a vote for Jackie Brown. If I had to choose a favourite Tarantino, then it's going to be Jackie Brown. I could watch any of Tarantino's films more than once, and I have. But mm. ultimately, they're going to pick Jackie Brown. Um, so, honestly, the seventh film out of the nine, mm. I was I was surprised by that, but fair play, Jackie Brown. Yeah, also, with you say, bring about Pam Green, Robert Forster, who plays the bail bondsman, Max Cherry, he got an Oscar nomination for that, and he'd been away from... Yeah. Like away from the big scenes for a while, and it also has one of my favorite death scenes, or one of the most satisfying death scenes, where in the parking lot, after the, like the fake heist, where you've got what's Robert De Niro's character's name? Is it Lou? Can't remember. He's been put with oh. like Ordell's like girlfriend, and she is like Bridget Fonda. Yeah, and she's like nagging, so nagging, annoying. nagging, and he keeps telling her to shut up, to shut up, and in the end, he just shoots her in the car park and walks off. And it's just so like, funny, she yeah. fucking owned that. You she really turn, did. Yeah, just turns around and shoots her and Samuel L. Jackson's going, where is she? And he goes, I shot her. What? I she's just shot her. I think she's yeah, dead. I think she's dead. Um, yeah, it was just brilliant. You could just see it was just like at the end of his tether. Yeah. It's just like, I can't, I'm too old. I can't be bothered with this yeah, exactly. shit. Let's just get out of here. Because he's, he's trying to find the car in the car park as well and she's nagging him because he yeah. can't find it. Is it over here? Is it over yeah. here? But no, I did I enjoy that death. Yeah. Okay, so in sixth place... And the longest film on the list, Tarantino's eighth film, officially, uh, 2015's Hateful Eight. So it's as low as sixth. Did you think it would be higher? It's in my top three. Interesting. Well, you've I... spoiled our top threes for the end there, Terry. Well, I haven't said where in the top three. Um... Could be fourth in my top three. No, um, I. Let's talk about the Hateful Eight then. I really, really like the Hateful Eight. Do you want to start with how we saw the Hateful Eight? Yeah, so we saw it. We'd, we were trying to work out what we were doing in London, but I think we might have been at the Prince Charles Cinema. I seeing... think we'd been to the cinema because I think we'd already watched some films and then we went to see this ridiculous yeah, so film. Yeah, so we were going to go and see it at Oxford's. Not Oxford Street. Leicester um, Square. Leicester Square Odeon because they were showing it in 70mm and I'm very interested in seeing films in 70mm, especially when they're filmed in 70mm. Um, but it turns out the Odeon in Leicester Square cost about 30 quid a ticket, so we decided to bollocks that off. Uh, so we ended up going, getting all the way back to Hemel, driving up to Jarman Park and getting in, and we ended up in like row D, which is the closest I've been to the screen in a very, very long time. That's, that's hard going as well, watching yeah. a film as long as The Hateful Eight. Yeah, so this, that is, close. this is a touch over three hours long. But I have to say, rewatching it, it do- it doesn't feel like three hours. It's it's like proper, like I'd say, like almost classical Tarantino. Because although there are other bits, it is basically a group of people in a room talking, mm-hmm. and it is just absolutely amazing. Again, it's got an amazing cast. Samuel L. Jackson's rocking up again. Kurt Russell, Walton Goggins, who's become a bit of a mainstay for Tarantino. Tim Roth as the amazingly named British uh, British Oswaldo Mowbray just what a fucking name uh, and then I you... love it I love how plummy he is and then when he drops the plummy accent yeah. it's just his accent it's just cockney. brilliant yeah yeah and then you got Bruce Dern Michael Madsen obviously because yeah. we mentioned it's a Quentin Tarantino film Zoe Bell rocks up in it. Oh. Jennifer Jason Leigh is like one of the few female characters. So, do you think this was a little revival for Jennifer Jason Leigh? I think so. I think. 
I think he's got a way, hasn't he, of like putting has, these actors It's and one of those things out. where he he picks someone. In some cases, it's like because apparently Samuel Jackson, obviously his big break also was like Pop Fiction. He auditioned for Reservoir Dogs. He loved him, but didn't want him for the role. So he goes away and writes roles for people. Is it because he's black? Possibly. And then there's other people where he just wants to bring them back, like Pam Greer, like John Travolta, and he just has them in mind because he has such an in-depth love of cinema. Mm. And he he randomly loves like films that some people haven't heard of, and he just wants to mm. like shine a light on those people. But this film, I mean, one of the things I love about this film the most is the music. The soundtrack is phenomenal, and it is it is an Oscar winner for best score. It's Ennio Morricone, who's obviously renowned for his Western scores mm-hmm. for like the spaghetti Westerns. And it was a real coup for Tarantino to get this because obviously normally he would have his own soundtrack that he's built off his, his massive record collection. But in this, it's actually all an original score and it's, which I don't think he's done before. No, it it was, it was very much a change, but I think he wanted to go like old school Western with this. And it was, it's very much a throwback and say it is just, there's not really a lot of special effects. It is, for the most part, just these people, eight people, in a room talking about what's going on. You've got John Ruth, played by Kurt Russell, who is a bounty hunter, who's got Jennifer Jason Lee's character, who is Annie Dem- Demeray? Demagoo? Demagoo, I think. Demagoo. Like and she's a $10,000 bounty, and he's taken her into Red Rock to hang because he. He doesn't kill people, even if he's allowed to. He gets, he lets the hangman hang them, and he basically thinks that everyone is trying to get her, either to free her or to steal his bounty. That it starts with him on his coach, and he bumps into Samuel Jackson in the middle of a blizzard, who's just sat on a rock waiting to be picked up. And then Walton Goggins, uh, Mannix gets picked up as well, and he's very, very wary of these people. We end up at at Minnie's haberdashery. Yeah. You don't hear haberdashery enough. Haberdashery is one of my favourite words. It's a beautiful word. Um, and there we meet Oswaldo Mowbray, uh, the general played by Bruce Stern, uh, Bob, who's the Mexican like hand, and Michael Madsen as John Gage. And deliberately, everyone is set up as very shady. We don't know what their true intentions are. Are they who they're saying they are? And it's just. So it's just them sat around talking, things happen, a play is made for Annie, Annie's very much put on, there's a great scene in the uh, steamcoach, not in the steamcoach, in the stagecoach where Kurt Russell is obviously handcuffed to Annie because he doesn't want her getting away and Samuel L. Jackson's character has a letter from Abraham Lincoln that John Roof wants to read and as he's reading it, Annie spits on it because she's just so hateful and without thinking, Samuel Jackson punches her, but punches her clean out of the stagecoach, and Kurt Russell follows shortly after because he's handcuffed to it. It's just Daisy, her name is. Oh, sorry, Daisy, not yeah. Annie. That's it. Um, but it's just because it's quite a serious film. It's quite a dour film, and just those little moments of levity like that just really raise it up. Uh, Tarantino has his standard cameo in this as the narrator, mm-hmm. um, so he doesn't and. Yeah, I just really, really love the film. Towards the end, I'd say maybe like the last half hour, it like flips on itself and becomes like this massive, bloody shootout type arrangement. And it changes, but it's still just about these characters and the way they talk. And it's just... I mean, I think the main thing you think of when you think of Tony, you think about his scripts, you think mm. about the language. The and this, And this film is just littered with it. It's just... 
So it, it is three hours, but it, it absolutely whizzes past. And it's the little details that I love. So that to get into the, the haberdashery, they have to kick the door in because the latch is broken. And then they have to nail the door shut again. But with two bits. With two bits. But it, it, at first it's try it and the door's shut. Okay, you need two bits, more nails. But there's at no point does anyone leave and come back in where they don't even make that. It's always a centre stage. It's always, yeah, you need to do it. And there's a bit where we see them coming in and then we almost have the flashback to how everyone else got there. And again, it centres on, mm. don't forget to nail the door shut. And it's just a little detail like that just really sort of sets it apart as a Tarantino film. But yeah, I'm genuinely very surprised how low down this is. I can only imagine because most people haven't watched it that many times because of how long it is. Um, I... Yeah, possibly, or maybe it's because it's one of the newer ones and I think people maybe have sentimental attachments to some of the older ones. Um, I I remember when we went to see it at the cinema and, like you say, that last sort of half hour or so when it all sort of, like, starts to kick off and people start shooting and we were actually almost sort of taken aback, like, yeah. in our seats by the amount of blood that yeah, there suddenly was. Yeah, because it goes from was. so subtle to OTT. Yeah, like like I was talking about, we, we mentioned Kill Bill 2, about the the use of blood um, in the film. So after Kill Bill 2, you got... Um, yeah, I would say the last three films he's done, the the blood work has been very... I think he's had the same person doing the effects, but the blood has been huge. It's the yeah. only way I can describe it. Someone gets shot and there's a lot of fucking blood. Mm. Um, well, this has, like, exploding heads in it and all sorts. Yeah. Um, but there's no, like, small wounds or anything like that. Oh, no. It's just... It's just a huge, huge, huge amount of blood. With Hateful Eight, I... When we went to see the cinema, I absolutely loved it. I love westerns, so mm. for him to do a film in this style, especially that soundtrack as well, and you know the fact it's snowing and it's so bleak, I absolutely love that kind of shit. Um, I especially liked the first part where they're in the coach, mm. um, and they're all sort of like they're all, you know, talking and stuff, like telling um, their stories. Yeah, they? telling their stories, and they all look. I don't know. They kind of look like they've been out roughing it for a while although my one quibble is I think Kurt Russell and Samuel L. Jackson have awfully white teeth for men that have been out on the road for so long when you Who's see looking Goggins, at their teeth when he's got bloody a moustache like that when you've got Goggins getting in and his teeth are disgusting mm. now I think these little these little touches are important and I'm surprised that Tarantino allows them to have such bright white teeth but I'll touch on the teeth thing um, when we talk about another thing these little touches are important oh um, yeah I think though that when I rewatched it for this, and I've I've watched it a couple of times since we saw it at the cinema, I do think it feels overlong. Um, I feel by the time you get into the haberdashery, after a while, it does start to drag just the tiniest little bit, and it did feel like a three-hour film to me. Um, now, it might be because I was all Tarantino'd out because I, this was my second to last film because I put the films in length order to watch them. I saved the longest till last, but I didn't. I saved a particular film till last because my thinking being, I've seen this film so many times that if I don't re-watch it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I did find it just the, just the tiniest bit long. When I when I rewatched it, 
Um, but one little bit of trivia which I did quite enjoy was the bit with the guitar. Oh, I was just about to say. Yeah, when Daisy's playing the guitar and Kurt Russell takes it off her and smashes it up, apparently it was some like real antique guitar. Yeah, it was a vintage of hundreds of thousands of dollars. He didn't know. So the people that loan out vintage guitars no longer loan them out. To Kurt Russell. Um, because... <laughs> The cats are fighting. Um, yeah, because he just smashed up mm. the guitar. But he was in the moment. Yeah, he was acting. Exactly. As Jerry would say, I'm an actor. I have to keep my emotions at a level. And this was also the film as well where we saw a bit of a public meltdown from uh, Tarantino because the screen, the screenplay got leaked. He wrote it, gave it to his eight people and it got leaked and he was like, I can't make it because people have read it. And he, for ages he was like, I'm not going to make it anymore. Mm. And then I don't know what it was that turned it. And I believe all of the same actors, because obviously he'd written every, every part in this film was written for the person who played the role. Mm. So I'm assuming he just made up with whoever it was that leaked it. I'm guessing it was Michael Madsen. I have no other theory than just because it's Michael Madsen. Fair enough. Um, if you can hear some scuffling in the background. And some cats, jingle bells. There's, yeah, some hissing. The cats are fighting, but we'll just let them carry on. Okay, so final five then. So we're at the half, this is the exact halfway point. So the fifth film on the list um, is Tarantino's first film from 1992, Reservoir Dogs. Fuck off! Why are you, why are you being like this? Because that's the best one. Um, so we'll just, start, we'll just start with a little comment that we had. Um, Tom from The Mother Pod actually got in touch. That was nice of him. Um, and he said his favourite film of Tarantino's was Reservoir Dogs. He said it's excellent from start to finish. Brilliant performances from Tim Roth and Harvey Cartel, particularly. Um, also, Michael Madsen as Mr. Blonde is a chilling movie psycho that deserves everything he gets. I agree with everything he says yep. there. I'm going to add in Mr. Pink into the mix as well. I don't um, think there's anything bad about Reservoir Dogs. No. So, a couple of um, episodes ago, and we were talking about Keanu Reeves, and you said you saw The Matrix, and it was the film that made you love cinema. And I said at the time, before we'd even picked Tarantino... Um, that Reservoir Dogs was the film that made me love cinema. Um, so it holds a very, very special place in my heart. Um, it wasn't the first Tarantino film I saw. Um, but I got to see it. When it came out, I was too young to see it. Mm. But I saw it played again on some like manager special or something like that. Um, and I probably got to see it a couple of years after it was released. Um, which was brilliant because I got to see it at the cinema. I haven't seen it at the cinema since. Um, but essentially what you've got here is a, is a jewellery heist movie. It's a heist movie that goes, it's a heist that mm. goes wrong. Um, you've got a bunch of criminals who are all bought, bought together by, um, Joe and his son, nice guy, Eddie, the, the group of strangers, they yeah. give them fake names, the heist goes wrong. And then they're all, most of them make it back to the meetup point, but they're all suspicious of each other. Yeah. They're all in this warehouse together. They suspect a rat. But they, do, yeah, they suspect a rat because the police turned up so quickly. But they're not, they're not really sure who to trust and they're waiting for. Because they obviously they don't know each other they so they don't have other. any points they've of They've got these trust. fake names. Um, and they're waiting for Joe and nice guy Eddie to turn up. Um, and as Tom said, you know, you've got, you've got Harvey Keitel playing Mr. White, um, who's like super cool he's, he's, he's like the old timer the, the, isn't he the old timer yeah hand. he seems like he's got the experience 
You've got um, Mr. Blonde, played by Michael Madsen, brilliantly, who is, who is a, a psycho. psychopath, yeah. Um, he's just got out of prison, isn't he? Yeah, he just got out of prison. He's known Joe and Nice Guy Eddie for years. He did time for Joe, basically. He got caught doing a crime for them, and he refused yeah. to um, drop Joe in it. So he served four years for them. So there's a lot, there's a lot of trust there from Joe and Nice Guy Eddie. They're, as far as they're concerned, it's never going to be Mr. Blonde. Um, but yeah, he plays a brilliant fucking psycho. And then you've got Tim Roth as Mr. Orange, yeah. um, who, after the heist, gets shot shot in the stomach. Yeah. They steal a lady's car. She takes the, the gun out of the glove box, shoots him in the stomach. And you've got this brilliant scene of him in the back of the car, just writhing around yeah, in blood agony. everywhere. Blood everywhere. saying, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. But you really believe... He's, his complexion is so pale. It looks like and his even voice as well. The way his voice goes is very. His voice squealy. changes. Um, you really believe that he's in a lot of pain. Yeah. Um, but even it even looks like his mouth has gone dry. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It's just those little things. Those little things, which is why I don't understand why they have such clean teeth in the hateful eight. But anyway, it's the little things like Tim Roth having a dry mouth after getting shot in the stomach, um, which is what makes Tarantino such a brilliant filmmaker. Um, but he's with Mr. White. Mr. White's trying to, you know, yeah. takes him under his wing, really, doesn't he? He wants yeah. him he wants him to be okay. He's thinking, should we take him to the hospital? Mr. Blonde's like, you fucking crazy. No. Yeah. Um, and Mr. Pink rocks up. Steve he turns Bushimi. up as well. And he just seems... He's a bit of a loose cannon, isn't he? He's just a bit... He's definitely out for himself. He doesn't yeah, give a shit the about... he's selfish. He's, he's like, there's definitely a rat in here. I know it's not me but I can't speak for any of the rest of you. Mm. He's pretty sure it's not Mr. Blonde yeah. because of the way he's behaving. Well, yeah, and he, the fact that he shot lots of people during the yeah. heist. But he's he's not he's not convinced about the other two as well. We've lost Blue and Brown. They've, yeah, they've died in it. They've done. Uh, they've Brown died. is Tarantino, Tarantino in But the film opens with them all sat around this table in like a diner just, just talking. And this is where we, we see the first sort of like... We see what Tarantino does so well. They're sat in, they're sat around a table. They're talking about Madonna's song "Like a Virgin." Yeah. Joe's little black book. Yeah. Because he's found this old address book and he's trying to work out who Toby is. Toby, Toby Wong. Yeah, because Kaitel uh, rips the shit out of him, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. Kaitel uh, threatens to steal the book off him if he doesn't shut up about it. This way, you've got Mister Mister Pink going on about I don't tip. Yeah, a and lovely that, little speech that. that. Brilliant, brilliant little speech, but it's just. A bunch of guys sat around a table eating breakfast, just chatting shit. Mm. But he does it so well. He does it so, so well. Um, I also think it's one of his best soundtracks. Oh, yeah. Um, and there's a few bit. I've got a few notes on my phone. Um, because one of my favourite... This might have been this might have been something that was done in films before, but this was the first time I noticed it happening. So they're in the warehouse, and Mister Blonde starts walking so, out and coming back. Mister Blonde has um, taken a hostage. He's kidnapped a police officer. He's got him tied, and he just, he decides he wants to torture him. He's like, "You can tell me what you know, or you cannot tell me, but I'm going to torture you anyway." And he puts the radio on. And he listens to. Uh, and the music's playing but he goes out goes out of the warehouse to get something and when he leaves the warehouse we stop hearing the music because he's outside so he wouldn't be able to hear the music when he goes back into the warehouse the music 
plays up again. It's as if we're walking out of the warehouse and back in with him, which we are on camera, yeah. but I, I don't remember ever seeing that in a film before, and I just think that's a really nice touch. But I've seen this film loads and loads and loads, but I noticed the 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 placing of the song, and I don't know if it was intentional. So when he does that, he's, he's tied the policeman up to the chair, he's torturing him, and Steeler's Wheel comes on. Um, and... He goes out, the music stops, and when he comes back in is when they're singing, please. They yeah. just keep repeating the word please, and it's almost as if it's done on purpose because the policeman's in the chair. I can't imagine like, anything pleading. but on purpose. I can't imagine something that perfect would happen because... But it is so they would perfect, have had, isn't it? That's what I mean, they would have had to have timed it. Yeah. Like the walk, so it must have been a deliberate act that that would be the words as he walked but back in. But that's so, so perfect, isn't it? Mm. I think so. Anyway, um, when I was younger, I, I bought it. Came out on video as a really like special edition, <coughs> which I had, and I had a Reservoir Dogs T-shirt, which I wore until it like almost fell apart. Um, and it had Mister Blonde's comb in it. No, Mister White's comb. Yeah. In it, um, and it had Joe's black book. And some other bits and pieces, but they're the two bits that I remember. It had a comb in it and Joe's Black Book and the T-shirt. It was a really, really nice thing. Obviously, I don't have any of my videos anymore besides yeah. Texas because that's naughty. Um, but yeah, Reservoir Dogs, the film that made me love cinema. Number five on the listeners list. I just can't believe it's that. it. I just think, it again, it's... There's some flashbacks and there's obviously the start, but it is mostly in the warehouse. These guys just, I mean, sat around talking, obviously, Mr. Orange is in a slightly bad way, sat on the floor, pissing blood everywhere. They say, Mr. Pink, I just love how he, they're just so different characters. There's no sort Mm. of, they're all pulling in their own different directions because like you say, Mr. White is almost, maybe we should take him to the hospital. I don't want him to bleed out. And then you've got the cop being brought into the mix. And obviously there's the horrendous torture scene set to stuck in the middle with you. And it's just... Yeah, Michael Madsen has never been better before or since. He is just phenomenal in that film. It's just... Yeah, I absolutely love it. I just think... Because I think it's his shortest film by a long way as well, mm, isn't it? It's like an hour and a half. Yeah, it's just over an hour and a half. But it is just... There's no fat on it. It's just... The dialogue, the acting, it's just a magical film. Um, and I remember when it when it came out as well, you could get the T-shirts that said, Who Shot Nice Guy, Eddie? Mm. Who Shot Nice yeah. Guy, Eddie? It's Mr. Orange, wasn't it? Who's Nice Guy, Eddie? That's Thingy, isn't it? Thingy? Yeah. Short, like, um, not Sean Penn. Yeah, short, no, not Sean Penn. The other one, Chris yeah, Penn. Chris Penn, that's it. Um, yeah, it's orange, isn't it? Is it? Who's, who's pointing the guns? Oh, no, of course it's not, is it? It's white. So there was... that you've. If you haven't seen the film, and you should really have a think about it yourself, if you haven't seen the film, you've got this standoff at the end where yeah. they're all pointing guns at each other, but there's... White is pointing a gun it's at... It's White, Joe and Eddie, isn't it? But White is pointing, pointing the gun, at, the gun Joe. at Joe. Eddie's pointing it at White, saying, "Don't point that gun at my dad." Yeah. And Joe 
is pointing it at Orange. Yeah, because everyone suspects that Orange is the rat. So there's three of them, but four of them dropped down. So there was a big thing about who shot Nice Guy Eddie because technically no one was pointing a gun, but you do hear four gunshots go off. Another thing which I read a lot about online, and I always I always had a theory about this, because can, you can hear it going on, is loads of people were just like, well, what happened to Mr Pink? Did he get away? You hear him like, scuffling you away, hear, don't you? Yeah, but you hear him scuffling away, but you also hear the police turn up. You hear the sirens and the police turn up and someone clearly being captured. What I took from that was that he got outside the warehouse, the cops turned up, and he was captured almost straight away. That's what I took from it. But if you go online, there's still people on there asking, what well, did Mr. Pink get away? Mm. Because he turns up in another film and they're like, oh, is this his character in the other film? No, it's clearly not Mr. Pink. Yeah. It's not Mr. Pink. Anyway, anyway. Um, have we talked enough about Reservoir Dogs? No, but we should probably move on. Let's move on to the The only next other one. little fact that I like from that, Eddie Bunker, who plays Mr. Blue, was a real real life criminal trying yeah. to turn his life around and he said like the film was really good but there is no fucking way that the crew would A that you would work with people you didn't know you don't do it because you don't trust anyone and two you wouldn't go out for breakfast all dressed in fucking suits and sunglasses <laughs> immediately before doing the job either that was a nice touch mm. they did look super cool and also as well I read that Quentin Tarantino loves the fact that this film appears on most f- top heist films despite the fact you never see the heist yeah but everyone calls it a heist film because it's I about it a heist. I call it a heist film straight away. Yeah. You did, yeah. Um, okay, so next one then. Number four on our list um, from 2012 is Django Unchained. <sighs> Are you annoyed that this is number four? Yeah. Um, People are wrong. Okay, well, we'll talk about our own lists afterwards. So the listeners have voted. Um, I mean, numbers-wise... Let's have a look. Were they Django, close or were there people like ways out in front? Kind of thing? Number one was way out in front. Number two, three and four were separated by three votes. So there's only one vote between this and the third place film. Um, so Django Unchained um, is a film about a slave called Django who has been <laughs> freed, hence the Unchained part of the title. Um, and he sets out to save his wife from a plantation owner with the help of a bounty hunter. Broomhilda. That's That's his his wife's name. Not the bounty hunter, obviously. Um, With the help of a bounty hunter, a German bounty hunter who is called... Dr. King Schultz. What a fucking name. Played by Christoph Waltz. Yeah. Who I think we can all um, agree is... We're talking about the actor or the character? The actor. Oh, he's just a great actor. Yeah. He's just just got such a twinkle in his eye. He has. Obviously, we will talk about another role that he's done for Tarantino Um, for different reasons. But but... this character especially has a twinkle in his eye. Oh, it's just... He's a a scamp, really, isn't he? He really... The way he just, like... The opening scene where he frees Django, he just, like, offs someone, and he's just like... He's just so relaxed, and he's so sure that what he's doing is right so he turns up at various places with his piece of paper his warrant to say i've got the right to take this person this is my piece this is my piece of paper to say that i can take this person um yep kill them to claim their bounty um and that's what he does 
but he takes Django. Why does he take Django? He wants him because he is after, I can't remember the name, That's but he's it. after three brothers and who Django are on the run and Django them. would recognise them from working on a plantation with them. That's it. Um, so then we, we, we're essentially watching the adventures of Django and Dr. Schultz as they make their way to Leonardo DiCaprio. Well, it starts off, doesn't it? They're going after those people, and then he was going to free him. Mm. And then he finds out about Broomhilda, and he's like, Why don't you stay with me for the winter? I'll yeah. teach you to bounty hunt. You can build up some money, and then you can go to wherever it is where the slaves are sold, and you can find Broomhilda, and I'll help you with that way. Because like, the first half of the film is that, and then the second half of the film is the whole Leo sub yeah. plot. Um. And, yeah, I mean, the, fir- the first part of the film is is kind of fun when you're watching yeah. them doing their bounty hunting. The whole bit with Don Johnson is I just... Mean, it's, it's cinema comedy gold. Him... So what happens is Dr. Dr. Schultz and Django go onto his land to kill these three brothers, which yeah. are the three that Django recognises... But then they've got to explain to Don Johnson that this is what we've done. Yeah. This is our warrant. We've killed these three people that you're friends with, but we've got a warrant to do it. And he's just like, fine, take the bodies, get off my land. But Don Johnson's having none of it. He's just like, no, we're going to go and get those fuckers. I think it's because it's Jang- Django yeah. kills at least two of them, if not all three of them, yeah. doesn't he? I think he's very much a black people are not able to do something like yeah, that. Yeah, so he's he's got a lot of black slaves and they decide to go after Dr. Schultz and Django with hoods over their faces. <laughs> and you've just got this brilliant, brilliant scene of 30-odd men on horses with hoods made by one of the guy's wives it's out just... of sacks. But way she's cut the eye holes, they can't see <laughs> out of the sacks. It's just such a perfect way to sort of rip the shit out of like the Ku Klux Klan because mm. you could do so many things about oh isn't it wrong what they do but to just send them up in such yeah. a subtle way it's so brilliant when Don Johnson tries to make his eye holes bigger but just rips his mask <laughs> yeah, like, I've, so made I've made it worse I've made it and literally the guy whose wife is like my wife worked all day to do this and he, he like That's goes off leaving. and leaves them to it because they've been so rude about his wife it's just oh just I can't think of another director adding Something like that, because it is so different to the... Because the rest of the film is... I mean, there's some scenes in Django that are really hard to watch mm. with how brutal they are. But to have, like, this out-and-out... It could almost be a Monty Python sketch in the middle of Django. And it, it I just love it. And it's Jonah Hill as well, which just makes yeah. it even more random. It's, it, it is so random, isn't it? And, yeah. it's, and again, you've got these other actors, like Don Johnson, such a, like old school classic yeah. 80s actor and he's got this amazing white suit and everything, yeah. hasn't he? And then... It's like and Tarant- a beautiful southern accent. Tarantino's just like, yeah, I'm having Don Johnson in this role. It's going to be good, um, and just sending him up in these masks. It's just absolutely ridiculous. But then there's the view. Are we going with or without the masks? No. Well, we've got to go with. It's all part of the theatre. Oh, no. So stupid. But yeah, so the first half of the film is Django sort of like training to be this amazing bounty hunter, and he goes out and gets new clothes and everything, yeah. doesn't he? To so look the part. Um, and then the second part is when they go to Leo's plantation. And After Calvin Candy, what a name that is as well. Go to Candyland um, to try and rescue Broomhilda. And you meet 
um, Leonardo and you meet Samuel L. Jackson's character. One of my favourite Samuel L. Jackson roles, this. It's so twisted and good. And it's I love it for a start because he's portrayed as an old man, although yeah. he's putting that on a yeah. lot, isn't he? So for for the audience and for... I mean, not so much for um, Leonardo's character because he he knows that he's not all sort of like hunched over and yeah. stuff. But everyone else believes he's a bit of a doddery old guy, isn't he? Yeah. He's very much not that person. Um, and although he's a black man, he's... He, he's like one of the more racist people because like Django is allowed into the big house and he's just like, you're going to let him in the big house? We're going to have to burn the sheets afterwards. And it's just, it's just weird to see racism from a black person against another black person in that context. But also, even though Leonardo obviously sees black people as slaves, he sees Samuel L. Jackson's character different. He's almost like his, not like a confidant, but... Yeah. He does... I think he would still see him as a slave, but he sees him as a good slave. And like you say, yeah, he would tell him things and he trusts... When he gives him information, he trusts him. Because there's a whole bit where he talks about how, like, the black man's skull is different and the certain Mm. bits don't grow the same way. You don't feel like he has those feelings towards Sam Jackson's character. Um... One of the things I really like about this film... Leonardo's character has really bad teeth in it. Oh yeah, he's he's fucking horrible in this film. Um, he has teeth. How you imagine someone living in that time would have teeth? Um, but anyway, moving away from that, um, the second part of the film where you've got the rescue of Broomhilda, mm. um, and and everything that sort of goes down and happens in that house again is one of those. Like I say, the last three films that Tarantino's done where the blood work is so extreme. Yeah. Like, is really highlighted, I think, in that, those end scenes in the house. Yeah, there's one bit in this one where someone gets shot by a darker pistol and they literally fly off like they've been hit by a cannonball and it's just, again, goes into the OTT realms. Yeah. Just, just the amount of blood and the way people are dying is just so over the top, but it just works so well and it's, it's like a trademark now. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't like that in the early ones. And it, I definitely think it came after Kill Bill, after the sort of spray blood work. Yeah. And then there's this different type of bleeding now. Um, but it was so bloody. But it was almost like the, in The Hateful Eight, it was very concentrated on a small amount of time. Whereas yeah. in Django, I feel like there was a lot of blood throughout. But then the yeah. final scene in the house... They do... Go hell for leather. Hell for leather. There's a very satisfying scene at the end. Um, it's just, I just I I really really love Django Unchained. I think it's got a a really excellent cast. Again, having someone like Jamie Fox playing the lead, I just think he's just got a way of picking mm. people that you well, wouldn't necessarily. This was written think. and offered to Will Smith, and he turned it down. It's one of the few ones where it isn't like Tarantino's first choice mm. in a role, and I. I couldn't see Will Smith playing that role because Will Smith's one of those like twinkle in the eye sort of thing, whereas this is a very hard... Django is a very harsh character. He's very unforgiving. Um, the one th- one minor complaint I have for this film, I think it has too many endings because you've got the bit where they're in the house, 
he gets captured again and then comes back again. I think you could have done without that little bit of him going away and coming back. Mm. I think you could have just gone for it from there. But yeah, I I think I mean, we've gone off the him a little bit, but I think Dr. King Schultz is one of my favourite Tarantino characters. Yeah. Just like I said, he's got that sort of bumbling granddaddy sort of thing, but so he's, he's just ruthless. Always, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's very clever. He's got this always got this slight little smile on his face, isn't he? He looks like he's being yeah. cheeky, but you know he's getting exactly what yeah. he wants. He's, he's definitely he's like, throughout the film. He's like playing chess, and he's always two moves ahead because there's things that happen like quite early on. He just he asks for the sheriff to come to this tavern, and he shoots the sheriff dead instantly. And you're like, what the fuck is he playing at? But he's got his plan in his head, and like mm. you say, he knows what's going to happen, and he is sure in his plan that this is what's going to happen, and it's going to work out well. Um, but yeah, it's just again, it it's got a very westerny vibe to it, and mm. I just, I really really love it. Well, yeah, because he released two westerns in a row. Yeah. Um. One of my favorite parts in this film, and I think it just um really showed up Doctor Schultz's sort of playfulness really nice is when I think it's when they go to Don Johnson's house and he's got. Django dressed up in that ridiculous outfit. <laughs> yeah, the blue velvet. Um, and he's like his footman or something. Valet. Valet, that's it. Um, and when he turns up and he goes, these are our um, horses, Tony and Fritz. But who calls a horse Tony? Do you know what I mean? It's just really yeah. funny. So we've named but that's the horse. thing, isn't it? Every time he introduces himself, he's like, I'm Dr. King Schultz and this is my horse Fritz. Yeah. It's just... It's like his but little because, he's there, because Django's with him now, he yeah. introduces both horses, Tony and Fritz. I'm like... Tony, Tony the horse. That's so brilliant. Um, yeah, absolutely love it. It's just brilliant. I think Leo in this as well. It you can't understate how amazing Leo is because, from what I understand, he took a bit of convincing to take the role because obviously he is a horrendous fucking bastard. He is dreadfully racist. Some of the stuff he has to say about like the skull sizes and the thickness of skulls, but he just throws himself into it so much. And I don't know if you know, the, there's a bit in the film where he bangs his hand mm. and there's blood everywhere. He actually cut his hand and stayed in that. character. And he, he like smears his blood over people. And like their shock is real because that isn't fake blood. That's actually Leo smearing his blood. But yeah, he's just absolutely phenomenal in this film. Apparently it's the only time he's played a bad guy since Man in the Iron Mask. Yeah, I can imagine that. And even in Man in the Iron Mask, that's a dual role for him because yeah. he plays like doppelgangers and one's the good guy and one's yeah. the bad guy. No, yeah, no, he does generally tend to be good guys, doesn't he? Um, and I also raised that he was really struggling with a couple of the scenes where there was a lot of like racist language. Yeah. Um, and he had to sort of take a break a couple of times. He was just like, I just, it just wasn't him. He just was really struggling. Because we've spoke about this before, haven't we? Where it was like, it must be really hard for actors to be like that. I think it's when we were talking yeah. about Green Book. But yeah, he was having a really hard time. And I think Samuel L. Jackson took him to one side and said something like, this is an average Tuesday for us, motherfucker, or something like that. Yeah. And and then they carried on with the scene because Samuel L. Jackson's like, don't you worry about it because I'm not worried about it. Yeah. So so just do it. This is just what we do. Um but yeah, amazing film. I'm looking forward to seeing Leo in the new film as well. Yeah. Leo's all that anyway. Oh yeah, Leo just... What an actor. We'll, we'll do him one day, but it what will be quite the Yes, that would definitely be a, um, a he's heavy another one hitter. Who, yeah, he doesn't make easy-to-watch films, does he? 
No, not always. Um, right. So we're down to our top three now. I've got a quote, a little quote. Um, so coming in at number three, the film from 2009, Inglorious Bastards. Um, so the, f- the first vote that we got in for Inglorious and I re- replied and said, brilliant, we've got a vote for Inglorious. I was getting worried that no one's going to vote for it. Really, I think it's an awesome film. Bastards is a wicked, cruel and funny movie. Brad Pitt is everything and that French chick is super cool. Plus, it has the most intense opening scene. That interrogation is some scary shit. And, of course, we're talking about the opening interrogation scene with... Christoph Waltz's Hans Lander. Again. So, this is the film that Christoph Waltz won all the awards for. He won for Dr. King Schultz as well, didn't he? But he... Like, this is the film that kind of, like, propelled him. Yeah, he was just, like, an actor in German films up yeah. until Inglorious. And then he... Because he won Best Supporting Actor Oscar. He won a Cannes Award. He won BAFTAs. He, won he just won everything for this mm. film. Um, and rightly so. Oh, I gotcha. just I just think it's, it's all brilliant. But so, very quickly then, Inglorious Bastards, if you haven't seen it, um, you've got a group of... Jewish American soldiers called the Bastards who yeah. are looking to kill uh, prominent Nazis, just Nazis yeah. generally, and they yeah. scalp them. And I have to say, the scalping um, made me look away from the screen. Cause and he was... carves in their, fa- in their heads as well, didn't he? The, yeah. Uh, the swastika. swastika. So, um, so for the ones that he lets go, he carves a massive swastika, not a massive, but he carves a swastika in their forehead so they're always scarred and so people will always know. Um, we do see this awful interrogation scene at the start of the movie where a whole family bar one are killed and later on we see the the daughter who escaped as um, is running a movie theatre yeah she also has plans to kill some prominent Nazis when they decide to hold a movie premiere at her theatre um, and then you've got Hans Lander who is given the title of people call him like a Jew hunter, but he yeah. doesn't like that title. That's essentially what he's yeah. doing, isn't it? He's he's looking for Jews that have been hidden, yeah, um, or have gone into hiding, and he's trying to just find the Jews for Hitler. Um, and you've got these groups of people meeting really, and all ended up in the same place. And who's gonna who's gonna get the upper hand really I mean yeah. Brad Pitt as the leader of the um, the bastards it's just really savage and brilliant I thought this was mm. a really interesting role for Brad Pitt yeah it was very different to what he was doing at the time I haven't really seen it before which is why I'm excited to see him in the new film as well him and Leonardo together I just think they're going to be amazing but I thought it was a really interesting role for um, Brad Pitt and a lot of people again when I've actually spoken to people about um the Tarantino, they've gone, oh yeah, I love that one with Brad Pitt. It's like, oh, you love Inglorious Bastards? And they're actually thinking of the film Fury. So, like, <laughs> no. Yeah. And then they're just kind of like, oh no, I'm not sure I've seen Inglorious Bastards. But um, it's, it's a very clever film. It's very uh, grim to watch in parts, but it's also, there's an element of humour in there as well, yeah. bought by the Bastards are funny, aren't they? Yeah. Um, and that scene with the actress where they're, they're in like a bar or something and they're playing... They're with Fassbender. 
Yeah. Because that so was like one got, of his first big roles as well. So you got some of the... And where's he from? Because his accent gives him away, doesn't it? He's like, no, it, it's the way he asked for three. Oh, yeah, that was really interesting. Because he does yeah, three accent, with three fingers. The accent does start to give him away, doesn't it? Because yeah. the guy was just like, where are you from? Where are you from? But yeah, it was the thing with the fingers, because apparently... In Germany, they'd use their thumb. And their two fingers. Nowhere else they would. We use just the one, fingers. two, three fingers. Yeah, that was a really interesting little mm. point, I thought. But yeah, when they're playing their like little games down there, and then, um, yeah, that all goes to shit as well. Yeah. And there's blood and guts everywhere. It's just, it's just all about Hanslander though. So that like open it interrogation, it's it's equal parts terrifying, equal parts like captivating. Like you can't look away from him, and it's just, mm. it's just so sinister, but so charismatic with it as well. Like the way he just carries on about what he's doing while he does it. Like it isn't like. Some people would be like screaming in their faces, but he's just very calm, very collected. Just this is what's going to happen. This is how we're going to go about it, and it's just, it just makes it even more sinister. Mm. Passive aggressive. Yeah. Yeah, asking for that glass of milk. Ugh. Yeah. Can he smoke? Yeah. And the little cake. Yeah, it's just all proper. It's just yeah, it's and I love just again towards the end just how balls to the wall the film goes because obviously mm. I mean I don't know how historically accurate it is up until that point but the end very much veers away from historical epic and into fantasy but it is just absolutely ludicrous again and it's just it's one of the few like Eli Roth's one of the bastards as well and he is generally a very poor actor but I really like him in this film he's the guy with the baseball bat mm. um, but yeah it just yeah it's a great film yeah, and the whole thing with the cinema as well. When they come up with that elaborate plan to sort of like trap everyone and burn yeah. everyone and set fire to the film. And it's just like, hmm, what could we possibly use that's extremely flammable? Oh, all of the film that we have here. Um, it's just, and it's a really nice looking film as well. Mm. Um, especially, I think, the lovely, like cinema, the scenes where she's up the ladder changing the letters to say what's showing at the cinema. It's just really... Yeah, again, like a little touch that you probably wouldn't get in a different film, but in a Tarantino film, he has those little weird moments. And when they're, um, she's asked to go out for dinner, isn't she? Because a, a prominent Nazi has taken a fancy to her, and uh, she wants none of it. But she's sort of summoned to dinner, isn't she? And um, Hans Lander turns up and sort of says, "You must have some of this strudel." Yeah. But he's really fussy about the cream. Yeah. But if you notice it, once it turns up, I think they have one bite, and then it's just. Right, well, we're done with this now. Yeah. But it's such a big thing made about the cream, and then they don't eat it anyway. Wasteful. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Inglorious Bastards, number three on the listener favourites. Um, I think it's a really solid film. I think everyone should watch it. All right, we're down to our top two. So you probably worked out what they are. Yeah. Because we haven't mentioned them. Can you guess what order they'd go in? Because number one is no fucking surprise. If I'm, I'm going to guess that number two is Kill Bill Volume 1. So from 2003, Kill Bill Volume 1 um, is the listener's second place film. Um, let me just see if I've got any... Okay, so the first, if I just quickly just say the only note I've really got... Well, no, I've got a couple of notes from this one. Is But my, the first thing I noticed about Kill Bill um, is that Earl McGraw's in it again. And he's the sheriff from, from Dust Till Dawn. He's in Kill Bill 2 as well. Mm. Um, playing a different character. 
but Earl McGraw turns up as exactly the same character and I just thought that was a really lovely like little overlap um and yeah you you talk about the film and then I'll just talk about a few of the other little bits that I yeah, like so it, it's kind of weird as we said earlier we're now talking about the first part when we've already talked about the second part so this is like the action epic mm. this is the out and out crazy action film where the bride wakes up from a coma I mean horrendously she's been used as like essentially a prostitute for the entire time because when she wakes up someone is about to have sex with her with a massive tub of Vaseline uh, she offs them like whilst not actually being able to walk because she's been in a coma for what four years mm. and there's like a massive scene where she gets in a car and she's just trying to make her toes wiggle mm. which again is just like a really nice like little scene apparently someone was telling me that Tarantino has a foot fetish which when you know that and you watch his films it becomes it very sense, apparent yeah. because there are feet all over his film and I mean, also it... Uma Thurman's got really big feet mm. and Death Proof obviously Kurt Russell licks someone's feet doesn't he um because I believe, and I may be casting aspersions, he was actually like dating Uma Thurman at the time of writing the Kill Bill films. Because it says written by Q and T, no Q and U or something like that, and it's they came up with the idea together, and then he wrote the films. But it was all based on like that he was sleeping with her essentially. Um, but yeah, so this is she wakes up, she's been wronged, she wants to get vengeance, she wants to kill Bill but she has to go through other people first. So the first one we get is Vivica Fox, where it's just a really nice scene where they're, like, there, but it's, again, it's just so civilised because, like, her daughter's there and, like, they agree not to do anything while the daughter's there. The daughter leaves and then it all kicks off. Um, and you have, like, this amazing, like, fight scene in a kitchen where there's, like, fruit loops going mm. all over the place. Um, she does what she needs to do. She sort of says to the daughter, like you'll understand when you're older mm. and he's always said that Kill Bill 3 was a potential when that actress was old enough to essentially go after because she bride. says doesn't she you know if you, yeah, if you, if you if want you, to come, and find, come me. and find me and I actually noticed looking at stuff on IMDb Kill Bill 3 is now showing on IMDb so I don't know if he's if that's just always been there or if because obviously well, what did, year did you say this came out the early 2000 or 2009 so 2003, so yeah. 2003, so, yeah. Yeah, so that's what, 16 years ago. So she's going to be in her mid to late 20s now. So that's perfectly old enough to have gone away trained and coming after the bride. Um, and then you've got Lucy Lou and the Crazy 88, which is one of, as you say, like the spurting blood. So she ends up literally with, I think it's actually a throwaway line in Kill Bill 2 where they're talking, oh, she took on the Crazy 88. And he's like, yeah, it's not actually 88 people. That's just like more of a name that they give themselves. But it's literally like, you said like an old school kung fu film where just these people are just pouring out of rooms at her and she's just slicing arms off legs off heads off they're flying all over the place and lucy lou's got like a mace ball with a massive with massive spikes in it and we have like a lovely like animated like proper manga style little throwback to explaining where lucy lou came from and how she became like this mm. top assassin which i really love the look of that and how that mm. was very different but again still very in keeping with the genre um, and obviously this is the one where we every, she's referred to as the bride or if someone says her name it is literally beeped out and it's just just such a ridiculous which again is something that would happen in an older film where they were just like oh fuck it we just won't let you know the name uh, but rather than like just not saying it just saying it and beeping it I just think it's just such a crazy thing to do um, but again 
like you said, it's the start of the last 20 minutes, half an hour, just being an absolute relentless, OTT, blood-filled spectacle. Obviously, this is the one where like, she's got this sort of iconic Bruce Lee-style outfit with the mm. yellow and the black stripes. And, yeah, it's, it is a very, very good film. I'm very surprised it's come out at number two. Um, especially with two coming so far back then, because I would very much have them on an even keel. I think I... I'd be inclined to sort of include them as one film because they are like that one narrative, even though they are very different. But yeah, I I liked Kill Bill one, but for me, this is one that is at the bottom of the list for me. It's not certainly not number two. Um, it's not my number two. I'm not surprised at how high it's come up in the list though, um, because obviously until I saw y- your list, I only had the responses that I'd got, um, and there were loads for Kill Bill. Um, and I have to admit, when I saw Kill Bill for the first time, I absolutely fucking loved it. But I went years before I saw Kill Bill too. I just never got round to watching it. Yeah. But I loved, and and I was thinking to myself, why haven't I watched Number Two? Because I fucking love Number One. But I just didn't, I didn't get round to it. Um, similar to you, I really loved the the whole big fight scene with Lucy Liu's gang. I liked there was a particular bit where it went from color to black and white, and then color again. Mm. There were some really lovely shots of them fighting in silhouette with like a blue background it was just all very striking um i just think it was really nicely done and one thing i did when i was re-watching it i actually said to lucy all the different characters you've got in kill bill and all the different assassins this would make for like a brilliant like fancy dress party and you could just say yeah. so come as a character from kill bill or just choose an uma thurman costume mm. because she wears so many great outfits during the films during the first and the second one um, although I do like um, Daryl Hannah's um, nurse's outfit. outfit nurse's outfit probably the best yeah um, and I really really love Lucy Liu as well so maybe that's why I've got a soft spot for one over two mm-hmm. um, but yeah I really like it I think it's got loads of great action again I love the the style of everything although I am very fond of the training montage in number two I just think as a whole, I think number one is a visual extravaganza. A feast for the eyes, as you like to say. It is a feast for the eyes. So it should come as no surprise to anyone that the number one Tarantino film, as voted for by the listeners, not by Terry and I, by the listeners, is 1994's Pulp Fiction. Tarantino's second film. Um, and my personal favourite soundtrack. But... um. Terry, what do you think of Pulp Fiction? So I, before the rewatch, I have, again, stress, I don't think any of his films are bad, but it was near the bottom of the list for me. I don't know if it's because everyone loves it so much and I just think it's okay, so that almost pushes it the other way. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I was going to rewatching it. Um, I love the sort of, tangled nature of it all how like you've got a bit here a bit there and it is not linear i love vic and jules i think they're amazing all of their scenes the whole vince. bit in the car oh sorry vic i'm getting the wrong uh vince um obviously the whole ezekiel speeches i love how when you see things from a different perspective they're slightly different as mm-hmm. well like what you're hearing in the background is different because they wouldn't hear it the same as someone else um 
I'm not overly keen on the Bruce Willis storyline. Um, like his boxer and the whole Ving Rhames and the gimp thing. Although obviously it's very iconic. I don't necessarily think it's needed. Um, but yeah, obviously it's his... Is he doing what I think he's doing? Mm-hmm. <sighs> Dirty bastard. We've got a cat with his penis out. Carry on, Terry, what were you saying? Luckily, he's not facing me. Um, Give it time. <laughs> my feet are there. Um, <laughs> uh, Has I'm, it thrown you? I've lost all chain of thought, yes, watching a cat humping a piece of... I'm watching <laughs> a blanket. Um, although, strangely, as I started talking about the gimp... Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> um, no, I think it's really good. Obviously, it's got a stellar cast... Um, it's the one that obviously relaunched John Travolta's career for him to piss up the wall again. Sort of properly broke Samuel L. Jackson into the mainstream, reintroduced Uma Thurman as well and made her a big star. And that um, look of hers as well. Yeah, that, that look, obviously the iconic dancing scene. Um, but yeah, for me, it's all about Vince and Jules, the whole tasty burger. Mm. I mean, speaking to someone at Royale work... Royale with cheese. Yeah, the Royale with cheese. The Big Mac's a Big Mac, but they call it the Big, Big Mac. Mac. Um, speaking to someone about this one, they were saying how they really like it because it's almost like the start of the Tarantino universe. It's the one that really sets up like certain things like the Big Kahuna Burger, which obviously is a recurring thing. The Red Apple Cigarettes, which is a recurring mm-hmm. thing. But lots of things that appear all the time. And it's, sort of, it's the start of that. Um, it's one of my favourite Tarantino roles for himself is Jimmy with the coffee uh, and obviously Winston Wolf. although that has been slightly tainted by oh, the direct line adverts advert. uh, Coco did I read something just going slightly off topic but, but not massively in um, Captain Marvel yeah does Samuel L. Jackson drink from a cup that he drank from in Pulp Fiction maybe I'm sure that's a bit of trivia I read they they did throw loads of stuff into it, so I wouldn't. It's the same. I wouldn't doubt it. Because Captain Marvel's set in the nineties, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, set in like the mid nineties. I think Samuel L. Jackson in Captain Marvel drinks from that takeaway cup that he what, drinks a big from. Oh no, no, there's a thing. Or does someone it's else? It's not drink Samuel it? Jackson. Talos, like the villain. Mm. There's a bit where he walks in drinking on a cup. That's it. And that's like yeah. a homage to. Both Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, obviously, Mr. Blonde walks in with the, yeah. with the sip, sipping from the cup, and Samuel Jackson drinks the drinks the tasty beverage tasty from beverage, the big yeah. Kahuna burger. Um, yeah, just slightly off topic there, but it just popped. Um, into and obviously my the head. scene in the car with Marvin as well. Is it Marvin? That's they just sh- yeah. When I sh- shot accent- him in the face. What the fuck happened? I just shot Marvin in the face. <laughs> Which is obviously the reason they end up calling for Winston Wolf and his direct line contacts. Um, yeah, so you've got these um, four stories entwining. I think the standout one is um, Jules and Vince and they're trying yeah. to retrieve a briefcase that's been stolen from their boss. Marcellus um, Wallace. Marcellus Wallace. And, you know, you've got that. But then you've also got the storyline with Mia Wallace where... Vincent's been asked to take her out. Not take her out, kill yeah. her. Take her out. Keep her company. Keep her company whilst Marcellus Wallace is out on business. And that's when they end up going to the diner. And that's where some people have got this theory about Mr. Pink. Because Steve Pacini plays Buddy Holly. Yeah. As one of the waiters in the diner. 
and in Reservoir Dogs, he says something about he's been a waiter before. Yeah. So he knows what the job's about. And some people are just like, is that supposed to be him? But no, it isn't. It's just a little sort of like fun that Tarantino yeah. thought it would be fun to get him in there playing a waiter. Um, and then you've got the, the like you say, the storyline with Bruce Willis's boxer character called Butch. Again, I'm not massively a fan of that. I find his girlfriend insanely oh, the whole annoying. Pot belly oh is just... god she's so annoying but then you've got the smaller storyline with um pumpkin and honey bunny yeah um and what i really really love is the way the film comes full circle so the film ends with vincent and jules in this diner ordering yeah. breakfast but it's the same diner that we start in where you've got pumpkin and honey bunny about to about to um hold up the diner but you can hear Vincent and Jules yeah. talking in the background. Um, which the very first time you watch the film, you won't, no. that won't mean anything to you because there are every subsequent viewing, and there will be subsequent viewings, um, you'll instantly recognise that it's yeah. Vincent and Jules talking in the background. Um, I'm in no way surprised that Pulp Fiction no, is the one. No, I assumed it would be the top one. Like someone did say that. Their response was Pulp Fiction, obviously, but it's a nostalgia thing because I remember seeing it when I was 18. Mm. Yeah, so it's, you know, for me, Reservoir Dogs is always going to be number one because it's a nostalgia thing to me. Pulp Fiction was the first Tarantino film I saw. I think Pulp Fiction, I remember watching it with my mum and dad having rented it from Blockbuster. My dad not understanding it because it didn't run in a linear fashion. Um, My dad took me to see... Uh, Pulp Fiction we went to see it at a theatre that was playing it um, like just screening it yeah because um, that was a way that I could get in um, and be under 18 because it was at a theatre it was just like a little loophole that we uh, exploited at the time and because my dad said I've seen this film and he's, and I remember when the uh, Mia Wallace gets to tell her a joke oh, my dad God. gave me a little nudge cause it's one of those jokes that's so shit it's a proper it's good. dad joke yeah but he just gave me a little joke when uh, a little nudge when the joke was coming up. Um, but her scenes as well when they uh, with the uh, shot of adrenaline. Yeah. And they're in like the uh, the drug dealer's house. You know that's that's a brilliant little scene as well. That's yeah. again it's another like little group of actors that aren't sort of like <coughs> you know they're actors that everyone knows and recognises, but they're not playing massive parts. Yeah. I think was that one of the. That might have been one of the roles that Pam Greer was went for or that was considered for. Yeah, there was definitely Maybe a few people wife. up for the drug dealer's wife. Yeah. yeah, I think that's the role that she might have been up for. Um, but any road up, yeah, absolutely brilliant film. I'm no way surprised it was number one. Um, how does it compare to you? I mean, I can't rank them um, like one to nine, but... How does the top three compare to your top three? Number one for me by far and away is Reservoir Dogs. And then... I don't know that I could pick any more. Bottom for me is probably... Kill Bill Volume 2. Which I think is what we had, wasn't it? Hateful Eight and Django are right up there for me. They're, They're probably my joint second... To Reservoir Dogs, and then it's just a, a mess in the middle there. Yeah, so I'm so Reservoir Dogs is my number one, but that's in my top ten films of all time anyway. 
And then for me, I've probably got a joint second of Django and Inglorious. Yeah. It's one of those things where, like, you could just pick characters like, like Hans Lander. I do love Inglorious Bastard, but I think Hans Lander is the best thing about it, which, like, Dr. King Shorts is the best thing in Django. It's just, I just think overall, Hateful Eight and Django are just more entertaining mm. and more rewatchable as well. I think. Inglorious is kind of a hard watch in places. No, I kind of like it though. Yeah, each to their own, Sonia. Each to their own. Um, but that has been a challenge, hasn't it? Because as you said, we've got films that are over two and a half hours and yeah. up to Hateful Eight, which is three hours long. Most of them are over two hours. It's just been finding the time. It has been um, very tough. But trying enjoyable. to squeeze them all in but yeah I've absolutely loved and I've re-watched every one as well yeah. and it's just been blooming brilliant and it's the first time ever we've done a topic when I've picked we've picked the subjects and I've just gone oh right okay and just got all the films off my shelf mm, I had to I uh, had them. re-buy Death Proof I swear I owned it but again I must have kexed it um, yeah it was just brilliant I was so so chuffed I was like yeah I don't have to buy anything I don't have to spend 50p in kex mm-hmm. um, I've got a few steel books. Yeah, I've got a Hateful Eight and a Django steelbook. Yeah, snazzy. I actually opened the Hateful Eight steelbook to watch it. Me too. Yeah. Yeah, so I hadn't watched it since we saw it at the cinema. Infinitely yeah. preferred it at the cinema. Um, right, good. Are we all done with Tarantino? Yeah, all done. For now, until the new film comes Just out. Just to stress again that, yeah, there is no bad Tarantino... There isn't a bad Tarantino film. There's just better Tarantino films. Yeah, but but we're right. Reservoir Dogs. Is yeah, Reservoir the best Dogs one. is the best by one. I... You're all fools. Yeah, fucking idiots. Someone Killed all one. Someone I know gave me a list and put Reservoir Dogs at the bottom. I was like, you having a laugh? You having a um, laugh? Can I correct you? Someone you used to know. Yeah. Put Reservoir Dogs at the bottom. They're struck off the Christmas card list now. Um, lovely. Right, we've enjoyed that very much. Thank you to everyone who got in touch. Yeah, um, it always makes it better when we get a lot of listener feedback. It's just nice to know people listen. Yeah, or at least read our it's Facebook not, posts. It's not just us. And yeah, with the Facebook posts, please make sure that you are like liking and sharing them. We know obviously we're getting a lot of listens and people like off the back of Facebook posts talk to me about it, but they're not actually engaging with the post. It'd be nice if you can share it and get get the message of the Theatrical Cut podcast out there. Oh, yeah, that would be nice. That would be nice. Um, same with the Instagram as well if you want to engage with us on there that'd be smashing we are Theatrical Cut Pod as we are on Facebook if you want to find and if you want to email us if you want to suggest a topic or if you want to tell us how wrong we are and how shit Reservoir Dogs actually is uh, we are theatricalcut at gmail.com I don't want anyone to email and tell us that yeah bear in mind we will find you and we'll shit in your letterbox (laughs) Um. cut your ear off (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we will. we'll send Mr. Blonde round to sort you out. Yeah. Um, any more for He probably more? needs the work, to be fair. Well, I'm, he, he did once upon a time in Hollywood. Yeah, but we so don't that, know So that'll well, see yeah. him through for another three years until the next Tarantino film comes out. Because um, there was always talk of a, Vin, of, the, of a Vega Brothers film, wasn't yeah. there? Yeah. Uh, I almost said Venga Brothers film. Oh, then. because what, what we haven't said is that... Um, He's Vincent's brother, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, Mr. Mr. Blonde and Vincent, Vincent they are the Vega brothers. And yeah, he he worked on it and then basically he worked on it so long it just 
because it was going to be a prequel and it was just like, there's no way they're going to pass for younger as John Travolta ballooned more and more. <laughs> Do you reckon it would be like the Shaw and Hobbs film? <laughs> <laughs> it was Samuel L. Jackson playing Brixton. <laughs> oh no, Will Smith can have that role. Oh, I just turn that one down. Just trying to imagine the two of them like get out of a chair would probably take twenty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna go do it. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, ah. <laughs> just uh, like just the cracking of <laughs> knees as they're standing like up. Like Alan Partridge. <laughs> yeah, exactly like Alan Partridge. Uh, but we can't talk about Alan because you know what happened last time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we ended up with a twenty-five minute separate podcast. Um, <laughs> So yeah, so that's our uh, social media. So the mother pod, our T M T O O H on Instagram and on Facebook. Uh, sorry, on Twitter, and then they're uh, too much time on our hands on Facebook. Uh, they don't have an email address because it's just too much admin for them. Um, so yeah, thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. We hope you aren't one of the people that said that Reservoir Dogs isn't the best film. Any more song? I'm all done. Mike, drop.